Now introducing the Minor Wisdom Trio! Minor Wisdom! This week I have Dorothy Louise on. Dorothy is responsible for the adaptation of Frankenstein that we are all reading for UIL Design. Now, I am not teaching this at my school, but I am teaching it for the adjunct position at the University of Houston that I am currently a part of, and having those future theater educators go through the process so that they understand how uh, it works and how to teach it, hopefully, Um, and so far so good. But we read the play and had uh you know a good discussion about the play and such you know a little more in depth i think than you would go with maybe some of your uh, high school kids maybe a little bit or maybe not in depth but more analytical if you will and i decided you know what i'd like to reach out to people because my mother always told me you don't know what you're going to get until you try to get it kind of thing or you don't or something like that maybe not that jumbly but a little more poetic but so i reached out to uh miss louise and she replied pretty quickly actually and said yeah absolutely I'd do it and so sent her a couple of uh questions and things like I do with some people and off we go and we chatted and had a great time she is very you'll hear obviously a writer because some of her words are much gooder than ours you know uh and so she's well read well well written all that kind of stuff well published if you look her up you can you can find her just like I did. And she's very receptive to the idea of having her show be used in this design competition. So, you know, it would have been super awkward if I was like, so what do you think about this UIL design competition? And they reply, that was it's such a stupid idea. But anyway, she didn't. She didn't at all. But it would just been like, well, I guess I'm not publishing that if that was the case. So anyway, uh, TXETA is this week. I cannot guarantee that there will be an episode next week because I will be busy with TXCTA and hopefully creating content from that uh, conference and interviewing people from there, but I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there Tuesday helping some of the larger vendors load in, and then Wednesday we hit the ground running, 7 a.m., ready to go. So uh, you don't get there at 7 a.m., but uh, we will be there on the exhibit floor getting people loaded in and ready to go for you guys. It The exhibit floor is sold out. I mean, like, it's legit sold out. And again, I think I mentioned this last week, not going to lie, I did not think a month ago that it would be anywhere near sold out, but uh, just because it was slow going. But I think that September 1st uh, fiscal year change really Uh, helped out a lot. So I think that's true with a lot of teachers too, a lot of people registering. So anyway, super excited about it. Super excited to see people, super excited to teach two workshops. Come see me Thursday and Friday. Um, Hopefully I'm not late Friday. Friday will be my younger daughter, Eleanor's sixth birthday. And tomorrow, as I record this tomorrow or the day this is coming out today, it is Avalyn's 10th birthday. So by the end of the week, I'll have a 10 and a six-year-old. So it's crazy. Anyway, I digress. I uh, hope everybody's doing well. hope everybody is doing well with their seasons. I know some shows have already started. Go Travis Tigers. Come on. Once a tiger, you're, I mean, you put on your resume, right? Isn't that what the saying is? So 
I don't have much more to say. Let's just get straight into the interview. Uh, follow me on the Twitter, Facebook, uh, friend me, whatever you want to do. Make sure if you are going to TXCTA, you stop me and say hi to me. And uh, I might put you on the podcast. I might interview you. Uh, or I might just have enough and or might have had enough at that moment. So anyway, but uh, please feel free to stop me. I was told uh, uh, this past week by some people that I've known now for uh, 15 years. Uh, you really scared me when we first met. And I don't know what it is about me that scares people because I'm just a Jewish cupcake, if you will. Kosher Jewish cupcake, obviously. So I uh, feel free. I would. I want you to approach me. I do this podcast to get to know people. Like I don't do this podcast so that I am not approachable and, and hate you and judge you. Like that's not at all why I do it. So approach me, maybe sit down and have a chat with me if we both have an hour and uh, let's go from there. So everybody have a great, great week. Enjoy this really fun interview and enlightening interview uh, with somebody not at all related to Texas theater, but somebody that has now, we've now kind of adopted into this world because of the UIL design process. And thank you, oh, Rachel Gomez, uh, for kind of giving me the green light and saying, hey girl, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do, interviewer. So I appreciate that trust and uh, look forward to doing more with the process. Enjoy this week's interview with the playwright of the Frankenstein adaptation for UIL design, Ms. Dorothy Louise. Genesis of my interest in the theater came via uh, my aunt, my father's sister, who was a Dominican nun, and uh, she ran a theater program at the various high schools that she was assigned to um, during her tenure. She had a master's degree in theater from Catholic U. And she was just full of life and full of stories. And so when she would come to visit, us on what was called her home visit every year. She would tell us the story, let's say, of Peter Pan, and we would see Peter Pan by the way she told the story. It was just enchanting. And then <clears throat> when it was time to go to high school, I had an older sister, two years older than I, who had become involved with the drama program, and this was in Chicago. And um, our program was at a Catholic school, uh, and the program was run by a woman named Therese Marie Cuny, who was renowned throughout the city for uh, the production she put on at our school and at another one, Providence High School. Ours was the Academy of Our Lady. And so I became drawn into the drama program there because of my sister's interest in it. And the program consisted of a, a fall competition at Loyola University of high school theater programs. Uh, limited to a half-hour uh, production, and that ran over the Thanksgiving weekend. And then we had a senior class play, although people who weren't seniors could also be involved in it, both on stage and off. And then we had a course every year, first year through senior year, one day a week, um, I think the, the the first year was something like movement and deportment and you know carrying yourself and so on. The second was voice, and we had a verse choir program. Um, the third year was scene work, and the fourth year was directing. And we could, if uh, Miss Cuny agreed, direct a play. So um, that's where it all started for me. 
And then, uh, although I majored in English as an undergraduate uh, for various sort of uh, was in an MFA, was in an, excuse me, MA program in English, only because I had a fellowship that would not allow me to major in theater. You had to major in something more academic. You couldn't major in journalism, for example, with this fellowship. So I majored in English, but I could write a play instead of a thesis for my master's degree. So I did that. And then I transferred to the PhD program at Stanford and got my PhD in oh, primarily directing and uh, dramatic literature was my emphasis. It wasn't as a writer. Um, and then I had various teaching jobs throughout the years, uh, but became less and less afraid of calling myself a playwright. Uh, and it seemed audacious and even arrogant to be a playwright. And also, of course, the playwright is the person who starts with nothing. And we need all those other artists, all those people to interpret what we do. In fact, we can't exist if they don't exist and if they aren't wonderful. So we depend and revere, uh, we depend upon and revere actors and designers of all, uh, in all the areas of design. But starting with nothing scared me. <laughs> I was, so it took a while. And, um, Eventually, I just became, uh, I just assumed that this is what I did as my work, even though I kept teaching for several years, uh, that in fact, I was a writer. And every summer, when you had the summer to yourself, I would work writing. Uh, so that's where I landed. And I've written, I, I, you have a, you have my CV. I think. And uh, so you see what that I've done several different kinds of things, short plays, full length plays, plays based on history, adaptations like Frankenstein. I've done five adaptations, two of which are published. Uh, and more and more, I began to rely on invention. And that is not adaptation where, in fact, you're more like an editor than a writer with an adaptation. Uh, and you call Frankenstein my play, but of course it's Mary Shelley's play. I mean, without her, there would be nothing there. Um, so I, I moved away from adaptation and I, I, I write plays, two plays based on historical figures, one about Mary Cassatt and Edgar Degas, who were friends in Paris in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. And I wrote a play about Meriwether Lewis uh, when I found out that he had committed suicide. That fact struck me as extraordinary. I thought, how is that? A, a hero of the nation kills himself only a couple of years after finishing his uh, heroic journey. Uh, and with Mary Cassatt and Degas, they had destroyed their letters to one another. So there wasn't that evidence. So in each case with Lewis and with Cassatt, there was a historical mystery that I could invent myself into, that I could create uh, a fiction for within the framework of that history. And I think adaptation uh, works a little bit like that too. You have a framework, you have a structure. Why are you adapting it unless you want to 
make use of that and be faithful to that and honor it, really. Uh, but within that, you can trim, you can alter uh, sequence. You certainly invent, can invent all the language. Uh, it's your language. It's not, I, I don't sit there with Mary Shelley's book and copy her language. Um, but that, those are aspects of this journey into the theater, which really became and remains uh, my first love as an activity, as something to which I am devoted and which engages me. I guess there's just one exception, which is right now, oddly enough, um, I'm writing a novel, a sort of a novel, and I've been doing that since January. And I'm, I don't know, I think about halfway through. Um, and before that, I had sketched a memoir, which I set aside in order to do the novel because I can't do two major projects at once. I confuse myself. <laughs> you know, I'm not that uh, much of a genius to be able to handle that. Um, but other than that, I have written only uh, in the in dramatic forms and find them difficult because they are so economical. You know, there's an, a distillation in a play that's like the distillation of poetry. Uh, a novel gives you much more capaciousness. You can expand. You can ramble a little. <laughs> you have lots of formal um, variety and choices that you can explore. Uh, but I thought play, I think, is is much tougher to do. So I was also, I think, drawn to that difficulty. I think I felt sort of challenged by that and wanted to be able to learn about it, explore it, and eventually um, master is too inflated a word, but feel that I had competence uh, in in that in that genre. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I want to talk about your process a little bit, um, uh -huh. kind of how you go about things. And you already sort of alluded to the fact that you don't work on more than one major project at a time. Right. Um, I'm assuming that doesn't mean that the cog wheels don't stop turning for what might be next. But, no, they, they don't. Yeah. And, yeah, and they get noted. Right, you know, exactly, they, yeah. They're fleeting. Yeah, <laughs> we'll come back to that later type of thing. Sure, yeah. Uh, so what what kind of, in a nutshell, I'm sure your process is uh, quite expansive, but what what is that process for you for writing a play or, and I guess it's a little different probably in this case for a novel, but we'll focus on the process of a play. Well, in both instances, as it happens, uh, you're never writing until you're writing, right? Uh, I think it was Sinclair Lewis who said, writing consists of applying the seat of your pants to the seat of your chair. Um, so it's important every day to me to sit down and write. Uh, that's, that's an essential of the process. Um, I like when I get a new idea for a play to begin as many scenes as I can. So I say to myself, um, oh, I have this notion about a kind of romantic comedy, comedy about two couples whose 
relationships are fraying and they are working hard at ways to salvage the relationships. They, they think, well, oh, if only we do this, if only we do that. So what would that mean? And then I start every scene that I can think of. Couple A are doing this. They're uh, finishing a, uh, cleaning up the house after a dinner party and turning out the lights and showing us in the subtext that in fact, things are very much awry. Uh, oh, okay, well, what about couple B? Well, maybe couple B was the couple that just left the dinner party. Okay, well, I'll write that scene. Well, maybe I should write the dinner party scene first, etc. So I start as many of these things as I can while things are clicking. And maybe I get a page and maybe I get 10 pages, but I go as far as I can. And then I start the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, and very often that is, you know, just a jumble of stuff. Uh, but out of that will probably emerge one or two nuggets, uh, one or two little cracks in the window where I can open the window and explore what's what's beyond. Um, I try to write in sequence. Uh, I don't usually outline a, a whole play, but I might just do a list of possibilities without doing cause and effect and so on. Uh, I try to follow all these dictum that you should follow your characters, have the sense that the character is leading me and not that I'm shoving the character, uh, you know, that somehow the character has an independent will and point of view and feelings and so on. And I simply just need to record these. Uh, so that's another important thing for me to imagine. I guess it's also true that um, the playwright is never ultimately autonomous, even though in some sense you are the most autonomous, right? You have your copyright. Nobody can change a syllable of what you've written without your permission and so on. But at the same time, without the actor and the director, actors and the director and the designers, you have nothing. I mean, until it is embodied and people come and look at it, you have a pile of paper. So another part of the process that to me is extremely important, and oh, it's essential, is to get first talk to a director have the director read the script and I talk to the director. One of the things about your competition that I think is unfortunate, uh, and I'm sure there are reasons for it, I'm not criticizing the competition, but it would be very hard to design a play without a director, I think, because the director is the one who keys the vision for the production and presumably the playwright, if, you're, if the director is able to work with a living playwright, that the playwright has keyed the director's key in some sense. So that exchange with a director whom I trust and usually with whom I have worked before to put together a reading and to cast, usually the director, sometimes I help with the casting um, and allow me to hear it in one go and have a sense of what I have and what the problems are um, is an essential part of the process. And then more, an essential part of that particular piece of it is 
the conversation with the actors afterwards, who very often have wonderful questions, some of which you cannot answer. <laughs> and you say, uh-oh, that, that, that's my uh, uh, responsibility. I better go back and pick that up. I, I dropped that stitch over here and I never picked it up later. Um, and sometimes they have uh, not just questions, but they have observations. And they will say, you know, I wondered when she does that at the beginning of the play, and then she does this over here, two thirds of the way in, um, how has she justified that change to herself? Well, how would you, <clears throat> so they often ask you questions and sometimes my answer is, I don't know, maybe you have to figure that out or maybe you actor have to invent that for yourself so that to you it makes sense how you get from a to m um and then after that the process of preparing for a production which perhaps is most germane to your audience of educators who are in a sense preparing for an imaginary production or maybe some people are actually going to produce this i don't know um is the work with the designers and the director together. And um, I revere designers. And I'm not saying that because of your competition. I and I feel so dependent on them. And the and the the designer I revere most is not involved in your competition. And that's the lighting designer. I, I feel that light defines space, defines atmosphere, defines uh mood and can instantaneously shift from one kind of thing to another so there's nothing clunky happening there's nothing you know the cinematic thrust of stage productions can be served so well by a, a good let alone great lighting designer so that's uh so essential to me to talk about how the light will operate uh in in a production um and and as well as the scenic and architectural scenic architectural elements of the of the production sound design i think is just um a terrific addition to the uh uh toolbox that we all have in productions because again it can happen instantly and it it appeals to the imagination you know, I hear those uh, cicadas uh, chirping or singing or whatever you call what cicadas do, cicada-ing in the background, you know, and I see the hot summer night or whatever it is that's being evoked simply by that little sound. Uh, and of course, music can play into the sound designer's uh, toolkit. So that too is an aspect. And and the costume designer the same. And one of the things that I think costume designers are perhaps not um, credited for to the degree to which they have earned that credit is how much the costume informs the actor. You know, actors say this over and over again. I only once that I'm in my costume do I sort of don my character, do I put it on? And I think that's um 
wonderful contribution that costume designers make, a wonderful facilitating of the production as a whole in an area that you don't necessarily think of as costume designers influencing. Um, but finally, of course, it's all of those people working in a coherent way towards some unified effect. And, and then we have the audience finally at the end of the process, right? Without them, we have not, we have no event. Um, uh, you have to have at least one person in the audience to receive the event and respond to the event. And uh, so that's, that's the whole thing. And I guess in many ways, just as I think there's a real balance between the playwright's autonomy and dependence on a whole team of people without whom she uh, has nothing. Um, so too, there's a balance between the necessity of solitude in order to write and the process of actually getting on a production. Right. And I would guess I've never actually clocked it because uh, I keep forgetting to, <laughs> <laughs> that the ratio would be probably out of a, that you would work on your script for about 10 months and then you would spend time with your team for about two months before you would get to the end of it which is the audience right. um but that balance between you know being alone i mean you are alone solitude is your breakfast if you aren't alone you can't be writing yeah. so that's why a lot of people say who wants to be a writer you know who wants to be a person sitting alone in a room that really sounds dreadful but of course, you're not alone. There are only yeah. no other visible human beings around you. But you are in your head with all of these people who are who are who are you know coming alive to you. It's like you know Pirandello when, when Pirandello wrote six characters in search of an author. He said that the genesis of the play, as I'm sure you know, is that he had written something or other and decided it wasn't going anywhere. As we do, we probably have more stuff that has begun and and interrupted, then we have stuff that has begun and finished. But he put these people down, you know, I, I think of him as having a drawer down below. I don't think he actually said that. Maybe the drawer was up here, but in any case, he put them in a drawer. And he felt somehow that they that they were hammering on the drawer, that they didn't want to stay in there. He said, you know, please, please, uh, Senor Pirandello, let us out of here. Give us a chance. Let us become what we can become. You started us. You you put us here. How can you condemn us to a kind of partial, unfulfilled existence? You know, we went out. And so he gave them their yep. view in Six Characters in Search of an Author. Um, but my only point is that there is a kind of companionship that exists in the solitude of writing, and that is the companionship of the characters whom you are inventing, or as Albee said, whom you are following, mm -hmm. whom you are allowing to lead you to wherever it is they, they would like you to go. <clears throat> so uh, it's fun that you, you mentioned two things that uh, kind of hit me in the heart. One is when I was at the University of Houston, Edward Albee was there as the, as the playwright, yeah. you know, the sort of commissioned playwright. So it was kind of fun. I got to learn a little bit under him. I didn't take any of his classes, but I was a part of some of his uh, productions and workshops. So uh, just a fun mind. Um, there are schools that are producing the show 
in anticipation uh. of, I do know of a couple. So there are some that are seeing it through as sort of a building block to, you know, that one or those, those couple of students that are individually designing it and then, you know, sending it off for competition. Uh, and then as a lighting designer, it's great to hear you say, <laughs> you know, all the kind yeah. words about lighting design. I didn't, I knew you were a designer. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what your yeah. emphasis was. I did not say that because. No, no, I, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, mostly so light. It's mostly like a lighting. miracle. To yeah. me, it's like a miracle, lighting yeah. design. And yeah, Do you, yeah. so a question that popped up, do, when you're writing a play, and I know the answer, I know the basic answer to this. Uh, about you, the question is, do you envision the play coming to life? Obviously you do, uh, yeah. but have you ever been a part of a production? I don't want you to slander anybody, so I'm going to ask you the positive side. Have you ever been a part of a production or the process where you have seen what you envision come to life? Because, you know, a lot of us, and I know you can understand this, you know, as a, as a teenager, I read, or a little earlier than that, I read Jurassic Park. And then you go see the movie and it's like, well, that wasn't exactly how I envisioned it in the, in the yeah. book or, you know, lots of Lord of the Rings people, you know, all that kind of stuff, Harry Potter. And so right. have you ever written a play that you actually saw almost come to life as you envisioned it? Uh, well, <laughs> and maybe the answer is no. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't, I didn't uh, hesitate because of that. Yeah. I hesitated because... There's a level of detail that happens when you actually are working toward a production that is not what happens while I'm actually writing, okay? So I will have a notion of the scenic impression, but I I, I won't say, and we have to have, uh, I don't know, a sunset in Act 2 or... Uh, um, a swing from a tree at the beginning or that kind of thing. Once in a while, there will be something that we need to have. Um, but, uh, and very often the process involves my adjusting how I see, because the person I'm talking to, the, the director, the scenic designer, the lighting designer, uh, asks me a question or observes something, or just comes up with something that we haven't even talked about. And I say to myself, oh, my goodness, that is just so on the money. Uh, you know, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful idea. So um, I'm not sure if I'm answering. Yeah, no, question. that I mean, that does help. It's it's more of it's still part of the process is kind of what you're saying is yeah. you're, you're not necessarily done when 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 you close the book, pretty much it's, it's still in the hands of other people to make this, oh, to make this play come to absolutely. life. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. If I, if I see certain things in the, for a particular it script, it's not like handing somebody a photograph, right. you know, it's just that I might mention, you know, I think this is, has a, has some hard surfaces and sharp angles. Right. That's the kind of play it is, you know, whereas here there's something, softer and more curvilinear and uh perhaps modulated in what right. we what we are looking at so it, it, it's more general terms like that than it is something really really um locked in right what do you typically use as inspiration for yourself 
Um, well, I'm observing all the time. Okay. You know, which is you should everybody should be aware of that if you're ever out with a writer, be careful. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're churning. They're you know. Yeah, they are. You know, Tregoran, uh, in, famously in the single. You know, he, he talks about how terrible, he's a famous novelist, right? He's he's celebrated. Everybody thinks, oh, what a lucky guy. And he says, oh, you have no idea what a burdensome life I live. Yeah. I go out and I can't help it. I have to observe everything. I have to make notes. I have to, it's horrible. It's terrible. Nobody wants to be um, a writer. So uh, part of your inspiration is the Tregoran uh, task of of observing i think uh all the time you just do it naturally i think it hasn't it's you're interested in people watch you know you people yeah. watch uh you eavesdrop you eavesdrop shamelessly you know sometimes my daughter and i when we would be out at a restaurant and it was a booth so that i could lean my ear back you know toward the back of the booth and listen to the people behind me would be she would be mortified she would be embarrassed clearly <laughs> my earlobe was down to the floor uh trying to look you know inconspicuous as i uh took in the the conversation that was happening behind me so that's one source i think there are a couple of others that are really important one of them is just reading 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 somewhere i read just the other day um Walter Cronkite gave advice, was giving advice to some uh, neophyte newscaster, I forget who, but it's some famous person, maybe it'll come to me. And he said to this person, the key is to read, read, read. So I think you read and you read in all genres and you read, uh, uh, you know, for hours every day. I mean, uh, I do anyway. Uh, and I, then I think exploring your own psyche, your own deeply felt emotions or shocks or losses or whatever they were, exploring those and seeing how they might apply to other people and in particular a given character in this or that situation I think is also a tremendous resource. Um, that's part of write what you know. You know, when people say write what you know, uh, that I think is a key part of it, what you have lived. But it's also true when you say write what you know, you better know a lot. I mean, you, there's a burden on you to know things. You can't just say, oh, well, <laughs> I write what I know. I don't know all that much, but that's what I'm going to write. Um, so that's another another resource is learning all the time, knowing travel, you know, is another part of this observing, um, you know, the sense that the world is such a variegated and diverse place with so many kinds of people in it and that it's a privilege to have observed the world's variety and its um, 
a difficult task to try to capture some of that or reflect some of that in whatever it is that you write. I mean, the last thing you want to be is provincial, you know, the last thing, even though your uh, view is by definition personal, I mean, everything happens through your own eyes, you're just hoping that you're going to bring some um, expansiveness and diversity to points of view and and empathy, you know, the, the ability to feel with all of these different people in all of these different situations. And I find I find I find that inspiring. Uh, other people's stories inspiring. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I I wish I read more. <laughs> that's all I'll say to that. Uh, well, you know, I try. Takes, yeah, it takes time yeah. too. It's you a know. commitment. Um, go ahead. I was going to so say that there's such a difference between reading the New York Times in the morning. Yeah. If, if you read it, and even if you leaf, you know, even if you, you know, just get the sense of the gist of a story, it takes me <coughs> usually two hours to do that. Whereas if I flip on CNN right. or, you know, I can get, I can get the stories in, 10 minutes, maybe half an hour max, you know? Yeah. So yep. yeah, it takes time, but it's a different level of engagement. That's why it takes time. Right. Yeah. Working a different muscle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so, um, I want to get dive into Frankenstein a little bit since that's kind of why we're here. Yeah. Uh, so I go going on too long. I so think. no, that's no, it's fine. Yeah. You're doing great. I, I love it. So I, I could sit and talk to, this is again, for me, it's very selfish to sit and talk to people uh, I don't care if one person listens or, or a hundred people listen or a thousand people listen. It's, this is very, this is more for me and I just happen to record it. Um, what, so you mentioned that you, uh, sort of in your intro that you have done five adaptations. Is that what you said of Frankenstein? Yeah. Um, no, no, not a Frankenstein. Oh. I've done five out of, I've taken another work. I got, oh, I got you. Uncle Tom's cabin, uh, servant of two masters uh and the fourth one uh, is escaping me besides frankenstein but i'm sure i can find it somewhere here yeah and i've uh, got i've got the list here too uh, um round and round round and round yep uh, yeah la ronde okay yeah so then uh what is it about kind of the frankenstein story that popped out to you that said i kind of want to see if i can wrap my hands around this and and give it a good adaptation well, I have to confess that the initial connection was accidental. Uh, I was uh, teaching in the theater department at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, wonderful place. And they had at the time, um, as part of the first year orientation, an event of some sort related to a book that everybody was supposed to read for part of the orientation. The idea was to give all of these people coming from all of the corners of the world some sort of common experience. And there were discussion groups related to the book and so on. And one year the book was Frankenstein. And uh, the dean asked me, would I consider um, somehow making a, an event on stage out of Frankenstein? So that's, that's how it started. And, and we did that. And as I mentioned in the introduction to the script, 
when I talk about um, possibilities for uh, staging, we just pulled scaffolding and rolling ladders and platforms and spiral staircases and things out of the shop. You know, we just we and put them all together on stage. So we had a kind of instant constructivist set. Now we had a, a scene designer who did this, but the point was we used found materials that cost us nothing, <clears throat> and it seemed to us appropriate to the uh, well. Production is too inflated a word. People were script in hand because we only had about a week to put this together, but. Um, we were lucky in being able to uh, use what was at hand appropriately. You know, we didn't have to stretch to say, this is a structure, you know, and this is just as Dr. Frankenstein structured his creature, so too we are going to create. And also, you can't, in my opinion, have a realistic production of Frankenstein without, I don't know, a million dollars and five zillion technical wizards who can move from, because there are too many shifts in locale and too many, too many uh, uh, changes that would, would probably take time. So you need a unit set. I mean, you need an open set, I think. Um, anyway, we had that and we did that. And uh, I did this adaptation fairly quickly, but I was so taken by the immediacy of the themes of the play by you know the temptation of hubris that dr frankenstein cannot resist by you know his unleashing what is he unleashing you know uh just as j robert oppenheimer and all the people who worked on the atomic um uh, bomb, you know, didn't you know, start out working on a bomb and certainly had no notion of what might might transpire from that. Anyway, that theme and also the, the to me, very moving um, theme of the creature's uh, solitude and which becomes isolation in the face of the fact that he looks different, that he is other. And when other meets norm, meets the ordinary, the norm is frightened. And so then they have to react negatively to the other. They have to push the other away. They have to destroy the other. They have to hate the other. And that seems to me a theme that we deal with this very day you know, people who differ from us or people who look different from us, who have different ideas from our ideas, they threaten us. And so we're threatened. And so we have to make these people who are different, terrible people. So um, I think somewhere the creature says something like, you know, I would not have been a monster except that I was miserable. And so he moves out of it. So that theme very much uh, attracted me. And then I was also just in awe of Mary Shelley, that she was, you know, a teenager. <laughs> and she is competing in this ghost story contest 
with people like Byron and uh, Byron's physician, Polidori, who, who invents the vampire story. And there, and she's the one who emerges with what has endured for 200 years. Uh, and, and that just, I thought, oh, that's, that's a lovely fact. I would like to explore this further. So once we had done our little project at Franklin and Marshall for the first year students, I, you know, went to my desk and worked on the, worked on uh, fleshing this out and refining what I had started because I found it so engaging uh, and so um, universally applicable, so timeless. You know, it really is a story. Well, obviously, uh, there's a clear testament to that, and that is the fact that everybody knows this story. I mean, they don't maybe maybe they make a mistake about who is Frankenstein, but they know roughly. They have some notion of this this 200 year old story written by this teenager, and it's lovely that the teenagers in Texas are getting a chance to work with a fellow teenagers uh, uh, product that is now two centuries old. Yeah. So uh, you sort of just touched on this, but besides that obvious, we think Frankenstein is the monster uh, misconception. Are there other common misconceptions that you kind of came across when you were writing this? Well, I think the films, I mean, uh, misconceptions that I think I myself might have had just because of the film history. And I don't even know that I ever saw those films, but I knew of them. All right. And and I had seen photographs of Boris Karloff, you know, with a square head or a flat square head and his bangs and his horrible face. And, uh, you know, this was this was. Um, going to be a, a horror story. That's what it was. Now, there is a horror, but the horror isn't in what the creature looks like. The horrors are other kinds of horrors. Um, so I think that's the basic thing that one has to argue against. And I think also, um, and I mentioned this, one of the students in Texas wrote to me about um, she had questions, she and her team, and I tried to answer them. But in, in answering her, uh, I thought about the production of The Elephant Man. And um, as I remember, I didn't check this, but as I remember, uh, uh, there an Englishman named Bernard Pomerantz wrote a play. And the play was done in New York in the 1980, 81, somewhere in there with an actor named Philip Anglum that I remember. And I remember the production and I remember, and the elephant man, of course, is supposed to be monstrously deformed, right? He has a disease that puffs, you know, makes him uh, uh, misshapen and so on, <coughs> excuse me. And there was Philip Anglum, absolutely beautiful, naked, except for a kind of loincloth, but he was slightly crooked. He was sort of, his upper body leaned to the uh, right, let's say, I'm just giving you the idea, not the exact, and the lower part maybe leaned to the, slightly crooked. And um, I mentioned this to this student, and I said, you know, you might wanna think about that, that part of the 
theme of Mary Shelley's book is the monstrousness is in the eye of the beholder, as well as the beholder helps create the monstrousness by the way you know, the only person who is good to the creature is a blind man um, who cannot see the deformity. Uh, anyway, I had suggested this to her, and then uh, I hadn't realized. And then there was a film of the Elephant Man that was not from his play, Pomerantz's play, but from the books that were the same resource that Pomerantz used. And then I hadn't known, but I don't know, 2010, 2000, somewhere in there, Bradley Cooper uh, did. Uh, an elephant man on Broadway with this same conceit of, you know, the person who is supposed to be so grossly deformed, you could barely look at him, is in fact beautiful with a slight, something slightly oddly wrong, but slight. That's all. And of course, that's a statement. Um, and that seems to me an important part of, of what Mary Shelley is saying. Right. Yeah. So that's cool. I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that that's good that students are reaching out to you. Uh, that's kind only, of well, it was only one, <laughs> well, only one we went back and forth a couple of times. She just had questions and I tried to answer them. Yeah. Hopefully more do over the time. You know, I, I have a feeling because this, this culminates in February. That's kind of the due date, I believe in, so I bet like end of January, early February, as these kids are <laughs> procrastinating, you're going right. to, you know, you might right. get quite a few uh, questions, but excuse me. Do you think that um, Mary Shelley, because you, you put Mary Shelley in the, in your play. Uh, so I'm assuming you got to know her a little bit. Uh, a little bit. Do you yeah. think that she uh, could see into the future and saw that this story was going to become pretty much a legendary, uh, you know, very much tied to obviously Halloween and that kind of thing, but just the story itself, you could, you could put it on in March and have nothing to do with Halloween right. and it would still resonate. Do you think that, that she saw this becoming what it has become? Oh, well, I, I have no way of, right. This um, is hypothetical. <laughs> no, 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 I know that, but, uh, I really, I really don't know. Uh, it's it's hard for me to think as the writer of a fellow writer as thinking of posterity, but maybe maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, she certainly, you know, stayed connected to the story and and uh, involved in the story, engaged with the story, and um, you know she she had so many. Did she have, she bore five children and only one lived to adulthood, something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She had quite uh, a few, but yeah, only, yeah. only a few. Some of them, you know, cut off very early and some of them a bit later. But uh, in some ways, the story of Dr. Frankenstein and the creature was her real uh, lasting creation in the way that you know, a child at least can become at least as lasting as into adulthood and one hopes a productive life. Uh, and so, but she, she stayed connected to it. I know. Um, I can't, 
it would be hard to imagine that she would have imagined such endurance, I think. Uh, it would seem arrogant to me. <laughs> right. It would more to reflect her character of Dr. Frankenstein in his, uh, you know, he's obviously a, a devoted scientist, but there's something hubristic about his efforts right. to create life. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I mean, I'm not a playwright, so, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my thought of, well, well, this, this will last forever. I guess that is kind of a, <laughs> kind of a big, big idea. It's, um, very, uh, uh, not cocky, but yeah, just the, the idea is, as you said, there's very little hubris in that, but, um, what, uh, so it's, I have a couple more questions and this, this is kind of from, uh, Rachel Gomez, who is in charge of this design contest. Yes. Um, cause I reached out to her and said, Hey, do you have anything you want me to kind of ask or put on record with, with you? And, and also question going back, this is a personal one. You said you have a PhD. So do we refer to you as Dr. Louise? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like Joe Biden. I don't know. Right. Don't okay. Know. Okay. Well, <clears throat> then, then I, I will, uh, I, I won't, but that's good information. Yeah, to have. It's fine. <clears throat> okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, this contest is kind of allowing, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, allowing students to put the play in any time and place, right? Uh, they kind of have full, full range of, of location and, and time. Uh, do you find, and you sort of touched on, <clears throat> touched on this already. I don't know why I'm getting so choked up. Um, but do you find that there are some important themes that would be interesting uh, to see the kids explore that maybe don't uh, don't just pop out immediately? Uh, you already mentioned about some of the themes that that the monster itself, the creature itself. I guess I shouldn't say the monster, but the creature himself uh, has, and 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 sort of that relationship with Victor. But are there some themes that would be interesting to see? some of these kids explore the directors with their kids, uh, explore throughout the process. Uh, I'm not sure that they translate visually, but you know, certainly, uh, Victor's Dr. Frankenstein's, um, ignorance about what he might unleash is a very important, Theme and you know that there are consequences to our actions that we cannot uh, envision, or that we maybe could envision, but we didn't bother to to uh, explore, and 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 they're out of our control. You know, they so that's certainly uh, one of the themes. The the idea that we lash out, that we we try to destroy what hurts us, or we try to destroy what uh ignores us or well, that's certainly an important thing um and as far as times and places that students might be exploring uh i i myself i think for this particular play am biased toward abstraction uh 
as I said earlier, not, you know, some sort that it's a time period and that we have to be in a certain time. Now, there might be, uh, you know, I'm sure there's stuff I'm missing there. There might be some reason to put it in a particular time period, but the story so <coughs> spills outside time yeah. that uh, it seems maybe not a useful avenue to explore, but rather to explore qualities of abstraction, qualities of space and light and volume. Uh, you know, is it is it a heavy place? Is it uh, does the place sort of be, is the place weightless? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are we floating around in it somehow? Or uh, and as I said earlier, when we did it at Franklin and Marshall, we simply pulled on structures that we had in the shop, uh, which was you know economically wonderful, yeah. but not just the financial economics, but the aesthetic economics, right. that there was a spareness and yet an emphatic stamp to the space that we were creating. I, I thought that was pretty important. Um, I had been in touch with, well, my knowledge of this competition was only because Rachel Gomez had emailed me right. and we did a back and forth with some questions I tried to answer as well as to direct her to my introduction because it pretty much say what I have to say there. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, your cough is now it's passed. I've passed it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that answers you. But... No, it does. Uh, I mean everything you you've given so far has been an answer. It's been a something that has been very helpful. So uh, you, you also are, and I've got two more questions, uh, but you already sort of touched on this as well. Uh, the language of your adaptation. So it is similar. It is not exact as you already said, it's similar to sort of how Mary Shelley constructed some of her, uh, some of the elements of her book of her story. Uh, yeah. so you, you clearly you made a decision with choosing that style. What was a challenge in keeping some of that same style? Because although you have been uh, rather eloquent and your language is uh, uh, cl clearly an educated language, it is still not necessarily simple to become somebody else and sort of try to wrap your head around what. How would they have written? this story or this section of my adaptation, my play, my version of this? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Blake, I'm not sure how consciously I did that. I, I, I do think that <clears throat> I thought of it as there was a kind of maybe formality is not quite the right word for the language. Uh, but, you know, they weren't going to talk like, uh, I don't know, gangs on a street or something. They, they, that wasn't going to happen. Um, but when I'm writing, and I know people always talk about dialogue. Oh, your dialogue is so wonderful. But, you know, dialogue seems to me like the least of it. Um, 
the characters, this is how they talk. This is how they flow through one. And um, I'm not sure that I have anything useful to say beyond <laughs> That's that. That's okay. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I'm, I mean, it's... It, truthful, to be truthful yeah. with you. You know, I didn't, I don't remember, except knowing that there was a kind of uh, formality just comes up again. I can't right. think of another uh, about this. Um, there's a, I guess because there's something so heightened about the themes, there's something dignified about right. what's going on <laughs> and how it is being presented uh, that feels apt. Yeah. It feels fitting and appropriate. Yeah. I mean, you, you had immersed yourself in this world and I kind of liken it to the idea that if you spend, you know, any amount of time, three, six, nine months in another country, you're going to start slowly sounding like you are from that country. So, you know, yeah. it's probably a similar, similar idea. So I'm going to get you out of here on this one. Um, there are going to be literally hundreds of adaptations or designs of your adaptation uh, from the minds of 15 to 18-year-old children, teenagers. What about that kind of excites you to see the results that come out of a contest that students are all over, you know, one of the, the, the second largest state <laughs> in the country, uh, you're going to have just, you, you could decorate houses worth of, of walls uh, with how many yeah. designs there are going to be. What kind of excites you about seeing all of these different interpretations of your story? Well, that very notion, you know, you're saying it, it is, I have a little free song, uh flowing through my head. Uh, you know, it's a thrilling notion. I think, you know, in some ways, uh, young people don't know very much. And so there's a whole lot for them to explore and learn. But the other side of not knowing a whole lot is that there aren't a whole lot of uh, impediments to thinking creatively, you know, because they don't have a lot of conventions, I hope, in their minds about how to do something or what can be done. You know, that there's, I, my experiences with college, I taught high school only for one year and I never again because I just nearly killed me. But uh, from college students, uh, their, their creativity, their openness, their freedom from uh notions that can box them in and and limit them is what i find really uh, uh a beautiful challenging idea that that they anything is possible and i hope that's what they now that doesn't mean uh uh you know that that anything is, that anything will do, but anything is possible, right? You can be so broad-minded, you are scatterbrained. We don't want to be scatterbrained about it. But I think that's what what uh, 
most interests me and excites me. And I would, you know, love to, I don't know if there's going to be a way to convey uh, the, the range of what was done, you know, whether they're going to shoot some video or, or stills or whatever. Uh, but I would love to see what these, what these students do. You know, sometimes students very often just need a little encouragement or the right kind of support. And they can do stupendous things, wonderful things. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm not telling your audience anything. They know yeah. that. But, uh, that's that's what interests me about this. Minor wind.